Welcome back to Hot Off the Pod. I'm your co-host, Harper Lambert. And I'm Melanie Zemen. Today, we are going to be talking about activism and social media. Social media seems to have permeated every aspect of our lives, including activist movements across our country and even our election. Today, we're super excited to be sitting down with Melissa Bartholomew, who is a doctoral candidate in public history in the history department at UCSB with a designated emphasis in feminist studies. And Melissa is also a fellow at the UC Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, which also provides support for this very podcast. Her work in the fellowship program has revolved around activism on college campuses where the divisions between free speech and hate speech have taken center stage in the wake and leading up to the last presidential election. As part of her project, she has developed a toolkit for navigating some of these difficult issues, including the role that social media plays in social justice movements, and that is what we're going to get into today. So thank you once again, Melissa, for joining us. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Melanie and Harper, for having me here. I am elated because we now know the results of this last presidential election. I can (sighs) sleep well at night, hopefully power through the cold that resulted from all the stress. And it's just great to be in conversation with students at UCSB. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy to be talking to you and, you know, looking into your work after a new president was officially selected by the people. And, you know, because a great deal of the case studies in your toolkit have to do with the dynamics that emerged in the last election cycle, you know, a rise in hate crimes, the emboldenment of the alt-right. We've seen as Black Lives Matter protests and protests against COVID measures have kind of emerged. It's a timely time yeah seriously there's a lot going on (laughs) so i was thinking we could start out by having you give us a little bit of background on the toolkit you developed and get into the factors that set the stage for writing this as well as what drew you to studying college campuses specifically Great. Thank you. Yeah, you know, really the toolkit and being a free speech fellow this past year and continuing with the center, a lot of it is kind of the culmination of my own background as a student activist. Even 20 years ago when I was an undergrad at UC Santa Cruz, I helped fight to establish the LGBTQ Resource Center that they have on campus. And I also got to be an intern for our chancellor at UC Santa Cruz. So this idea of working with top level university administrators and working as a student activist committed to the causes has kind of gotten me to have a foot in multiple worlds and really a unique perspective, really dating back a long time. And so I've always been engaged during my different studies, different degrees. And so here at UC Santa Barbara, I was uh, really shocked, to be honest, in 2015 and into 2016 when Trump first announced he was running for presidency and just seeing kind of the difficult vitriol and animosity happening nationally and some of that sadly on our campus really got me involved in wanting to do alternative programming and helping the community and so once I started working with Black Student Union and different student groups on campus to try and have a response and do positive things and noticed how there was a lot of miscommunication and tension about students not really understanding why like hate speech would be allowed on campus or why provocative speakers who are spewing hateful things would be coming and using the resources. And so for me, I became kind of interested in explaining to students what was going on and also talking to administration about ways they could support students or explain some of those things being a little bit of an intermediary or suggesting why maybe we don't want to have a huge counter protest for the Ben Shapiro talk because that just creates more frontline news coverage for Ben Shapiro. And so a lot of times uh, I would, as a student activist, work with those communities talking about, hey, let's try and support alternative events and things like that. So when I became familiar with the Free Speech Center, I wrote to them and asked for resources and then ended up becoming a fellow and then was able to 
you know, I kind of wrote a lot. It's like 100 pages <laughs> of a toolkit, but really talking, it's, it's almost ethnographic, like talking about my experiences as a student activist who's also worked part-time as a grad student employee for student affairs and the ways we can build community and kind of create better understanding around what policies are, but not just the policies, what we can actually do to affect change. Even if the law says we have to provide an opportunity for speakers invited by student groups who maybe say hateful things, well, what else can we do to improve our campus community, hold true to our own values? So that's really kind of my overarching goal with the toolkit. Right. And I mean, so much of what you're talking about in this toolkit kind of goes back to this kernel of what is free speech? What is the difference between free speech and hate speech? And that is something that has caused so much confusion and turmoil on college campuses. So I'm wondering if you could define that for us. Yeah. So really the big challenge is that we have a common sense understanding of hate speech. I would say like Americans, people tend to be like, oh, that's hateful. That's hate speech. But under the First Amendment, under the law, there is no mention of this concept of hate speech. It's not as though it's prohibited speech. It's not even discussed in that way. Right. So there's only eight very specific ways of saying that speech is not permitted and it has to be like incitement to violence and things like that, right? So it gets really hard because students, and I'd say, and faculty especially, and staff who might not be familiar with First Amendment laws applied to public college campuses, tend to think that's hate speech and it runs afoul our community principles, right, and our non-discrimination ordinance policies, things like that. So how can we have these value statements and these promises to students of an environment that's going to be supportive and not allow prejudice and then have these hateful speakers, right? But to really be in accordance with First Amendment law, universities need to, they need to be content neutral, basically. They need to be willing to let campus sponsors bring speakers regardless of content. It puts administrators in a really tough bind a lot of times. And while those value statements and non-discrimination clauses and things are important, it's not at the same level of in terms of law. And like, if you say we're just not going to allow a speaker, you can get huge, massive lawsuits when I believe it was in Auburn University. I think that's what it was. And they were telling Richard Spencer, who's kind of the poster boy of the alt-right, you can't come. And then they got slapped with a massive lawsuit, right? So... Uh, it, it is a challenging situation. I hope I kind of answered your question there. Definitely. And I mean, I think we'd be remiss to have a conversation about free speech and hate speech without mentioning social media, which is where a lot of both social justice movements have kind of mobilized and also where hate speech has been inflamed, you know, in no small part thanks to the 45th president of the United States. But we've seen leading up to the 2016 election and currently even that white nationalist and supremacist groups like QAnon and the Proud Boys use social media to spread their messages as much as people, let's say, in the Black Lives Matter movement and in other progressive social movements are using it too. So that kind of in 2016 happened because of the inaction, I think, too, of like tech companies, social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter, election interference, all of the misinformation. And what that makes me think of is when we met at the uh, free speech conference in, Jan was it January? February. Yeah. February. You know what? It feels like 10 years ago. But <laughs> <laughs> when we were there, we we went and saw a panel on Facebook and the upcoming election. There was a representative from Facebook there and they were talking about what went wrong in 2016, ramping up transparency measures regarding who ads are targeting, flagging posts is incorrect, preventing, you know, the whole mess that happened last time from playing out again. But when she was asked about what Facebook is doing to draw a line, a hardline stance between hate speech and protected speech, the answer, and I wrote this down, was still basically we're working on yeah. it. And, you know, it pretty much sums up like where we've been for the last couple years. So I know we've talked a little bit about the university as kind of this like neutral arbiter, 
But what about tech companies? What about the platforms that people are utilizing all the time to spread these messages and have these discussions? Can they police speech on their platforms and still fall under these First Amendment rights that we have? Yeah, you know, so a lot of times they have these policies and user agreements, right, where you have to, in order to be able to use their platform, you have to adhere to certain policies that they have, right? So as private companies, they can pull things away that they think are incitements to violence or somehow violate their own terms and policies. Policies, but I wanted to share uh, an article I was just reading about this very topic where it was talking about uh, in the wake of this past week and the elections that there was this group that was formed on Facebook called Stop the Steal. I don't know if you heard about it, but over 350,000 people, their profiles were somehow up associated with this Stop the Steal event where um, the group was saying we want to have events showing that this is a fraudulent election, that this is all corruption, and they wanted to delegitimize the election results that weren't favoring President Trump. And they actually got to the point where they were calling for violence and even a civil war. And so clearly violating the terms of Facebook's policies once it got to the point of inciting violence and wanting to have a civil war. So Facebook stopped them because of these violent threats and, you know, closed down that account, that Facebook group page. However, they were so clever when they set this up, the people behind it who were Trump operatives, they were people who had begun the website called hashtag we build the wall and they had like gotten money from personal donors towards trying to build the wall. So these pro-Trump operatives knew Facebook was going to shut them down. So from the very beginning, they put it out there of here's the website where we can all organize ourselves and be that had nothing to do with Facebook, but put that up there on Facebook. So it was just a way to flag attention and then redirect people elsewhere, right? If you follow me. So Hmm. one of the biggest challenges for Facebook and Twitter and these types of um, companies is to they're almost always having to play catch up with people who are already ahead of them, right? Similar to like hackers or those other types of things that happen. It's the same thing in a university environment too, I would add in terms of social media and regulation is the technology advances so fast, people's clever ways of circumventing laws and policies uh, happen so quickly. Your policy is always lagging behind and trying to catch up with real time. I know sometimes it's just a matter of the technology, again, outpaces the ability of these companies to rein in things even when they want to, but not enough is being done. That article I was talking about, it was from NBC News, and they said that Facebook employees were livid and upset that they didn't think the company was doing enough, acting quickly enough to stop that um, group that I just mentioned, Stop the Steal, yeah. Yeah, I mean, two great examples of how, you know, people are using social media to incite riots and violence and really it's become a place to get the word out quickly and that in and of itself can become dangerous. So, you know, of course, we have to take into account that increased polarization surrounding free speech was fueled by our president, by these organizations on social media. What do you think the impact is of Trump's claims that his lies are being protected by free speech? And do you think that's kind of fueling these movements on Facebook and Twitter? Yeah, I definitely think that Trump's behavior has inflamed a lot of tensions, um, you know, around the nation. And we see how quickly something he does or says can have an impact among his followers. So an example, when he was being asked to denounce white supremacy and the way in which he did it was kind of a nod and wink to white supremacist groups and said, which groups, which ones? And when Joe Biden said, Proud Boys, he says, stand back and stand by to the Proud Boys, right? Well, what does that do? That totally flooded their social media accounts with all kinds of people interested, right? Because even if people 
aren't going to say, oh, that's me and I want to become a Proud Boy. They might just be curious, like, oh, what does that mean? I've never heard of them. What is this? And they go there, right? Just as we might go to Wikipedia. And then they get kind of interested or engaged in something they maybe wouldn't have been excited about before. So the Proud Boys were super excited, you know, changed their Twitter stuff to talk about how Trump was embracing them or, you know, giving them more of a platform. And then it just becomes a situation where this is a murderous group. Proud Boys is not a bunch of Jim Bunny men who are weightlifting together. Like they... (laughs) To put it lightly. Yeah, they have AR-15s and they actually use means of violence to murder people, injure people. So like, I think there's that weird moment we have as a society too, where it's almost like there's just a certain entertainment value that I feel Trump drives and fuels off of by making things titillating, like making it interesting to people like, oh, white supremacy, these fine people. Oh, interesting. What is that in a way that is just so bizarre when we think about it? I think it just a lot of it comes back to the apprentice and this kind of (laughs) Hollywood like image he puts out there about himself. So I, I just feel like even with hate groups, it's as though, you know, when they said to him before, what do you think about David Duke? endorsing you, right? The former head of the Ku Klux Klan endorsing you and um, being excited that you're president. And he said, oh, I don't know David Duke. I don't, I don't know who he is. I mean, of course he knows who he is or, you know, knows him. There's photos of them together in the past, but he just plays dumb or makes it seem like everything's kind of on this even platform. I will say one thing that was really clever, I thought, was as Proud Boys was really trending and getting this attention. I don't know if it was through an organization, but I remember some gay men kind of hijacked the Twitter feed of Proud Boys, right? And did their own hashtag of, you know, Proud Boys, but with men from gay pride parades and holding hands and like all of these things. Okay, so I'm a lesbian. So like, I find that really clever and campy as a response because we would assume Proud Boys, though they're very I don't want to say homoerotic, but definitely like, right? I mean, yeah, totally. If you look at what you have to do to become a proud boy, I am not making this up. I guess, you know, I was just curious, how does one become a proud boy? And they have a certain like rite of passage. And some of it had to do with getting beaten up by other people. Okay, fine. That's kind of like some gang ritual things as well, where like, you're going to be beaten up by the men who now are going to be your brothers. But then... It even said things about masturbation and like not masturbating. And so I'm like, okay, hmm, you have a whole bunch of men together with their like, you know, I don't know, AR-15s that to me seem like a sex toy for some of them in terms of their fascination and excitement, the way they clutch them to their bodies. And then they're like talking about masturbation, right? Like, I don't know. It seems rather strange. And so in some ways, I kind of, as a gay person, as a lesbian, I kind of liked the idea of gay men kind of hijacking their Twitter feed in that way, because, you know, there is something to just be said for how they're both homophobic, but yet so fixated on each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, even choosing to be named Proud Boys, (laughs) I feel like is kind of a sign of that. I know, I was going to say, like, this is ripe ground for some Freudian analysis in the future. It'll be, you know, lots of English... Lots of lots of English majors. Lots lots of studying of course, to do on this. Of course, we are topic, both English majors come. here, so we're very, you know. <laughs> I know. I'm like mm, the phallic symbolism <laughs> of the AR-15. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. No. And like you know, something that I think all of this sort of pulls into focus is that all eyes were on sort of Facebook, Twitter, the social media realm in 2016 in a way that like they've never taken center stage in an election in the way that they did back then. And I think that was a huge point of concern for this upcoming election. Um, And then like most things, the pandemic kind of just blew all of that out of the water. Here we have, you know, Trump continuing to have these in-person rallies and super spreader events, campaign events, whatever. But I think that it was pretty clear that the way that both 
parties campaigned was going to be totally different because so much had been moved online. And the question is like, here we have all of these outlets for connecting all the time and for spreading messages like we've been talking about, but does that really engage people and like mobilize people to participate in activism? Mm. That's kind of a whole other question. And, you know, I think another element of that is that Trump kind of has forsaken the traditional press conference uh, form of communication and replaced that with just talking directly to constituents on Twitter. And, you know, to me, it feels like there's no going back from that. Like, like it or not, from now on, we're going to have social media be a huge, huge part of the political sphere in this country, Um, especially in moving forward and healing the divide as joe biden talked about last night there's so much work to be done in a pandemic where we can't all be together in person a lot of that work's probably going to have to be done through the net (laughs) so do you think that going forward even after the pandemic ends we're going to be seeing social media as an indispensable tool of politics and free speech yeah it's interesting because like my my mom uses her facebook to look at videos of of cats jumping into pools of water and now she uses it more to like promote her values and ideas to her friends and it is really an indispensable tool in that way yeah you know I have three little guinea pigs at home that my wife and I uh, care for. And so for us, you know, my Facebook feed reads kind of like a mixture of guinea pigs doing cute things and Black Lives Matter and social justice stuff and, you know, anti-Trump and politics stuff, right? And it's all this mixture, but it's also the way that I find some kind of emotional grounding for myself is like to still put photos up right now with my parents when they visit. We all have our masks. We eat outside at the picnic tables, actually two different picnic tables, physically distanced. And I tend to take photos of us at our two different tables with our masks on. And, you know, part of it is because I emotionally still need to see people smiling and happy. I think that regardless of what we want, social media is definitely with us in terms of the political process, thinking about elections and who we're going to select, as well as messages being sent out by the president and other people in the administration. I will say that someone, I think it was from the Biden campaign, I can't remember exactly where, but they said, President Biden will not govern by Twitter. And that's a really short statement that I thought was really powerful, right? Because part of it is when you have this toddler-like man who has no impulse control and tweets hateful things constantly, we're getting barraged and exhausted and confused. It's like this very strategic way to distract us and to divide and to exhaust people. And so I hope and think that, you know, Biden and Harris will use social media, but they're not going to tweet at us at 3 a.m. about sudden bans or sudden horrible things that they're going to do, right? So I'm hoping it will be in a meaningful, purposeful way that builds community and hopefully uh, is utilized in that way. The misinformation part of it, I think, is key in terms of even my own family. My in-laws are Republican. They live in a different state we won't name because we don't want to be red state, blue state obsessed. They just have different values, evangelical, um, very different from my hippy-dippy background here on the West Coast of California. And in a way, it's hard to do that over social media, but in a way, I'm thankful for it because we never talk about politics. And so I felt like this is at least a little entry point, right? And so When she said, Melissa, what do you mean in looking at the election results, white people need to do better? (laughs) Where to begin? (laughs) Where to begin? Where to begin with that? (laughs) My response was, thank you for sharing your opinions and perspectives. I really appreciate that you're doing that and we can talk about these things. And I feel like that's, you know, a stance that's not taken by many people these days with so much political divide. And, you know, something I was talking to Harper about earlier was like when I scroll through my feed on social media as a Democrat, I don't see those Trump things. I don't see comments from people. And when they do occasionally pop up, 
I usually click on follow right away. Like that's, I don't want to see those things anymore. And so I feel like this sense that our social media is really a guide to how we view politics and how we feel about things going on right now is creating more of a divide and, you know, contributing to this confirmation bias that is really dividing our country. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to add on to that by saying that, you know, solidarity on social media, it's really a double-edged sword because it does mean positive identification with communities that like, one, we don't really have access to in the same way during a pandemic. And two, you know, if we feel politically alienated from our own families or our friends, you can find a replacement for that on social media. And then on the other hand, that is exactly what emboldens the sort of hate speech and, you know, the vitriol that we're seeing overtake social media. But I think the reason that there's been such a huge sort of shift or just an embrace of social media, um, it's kind of this like idea that we maintain control over the information that we're receiving. And, you know, there's a lot of distrust in the news media. That's granted and honestly warranted for a lot of reasons. But it's that idea of like, oh, you turn on the TV and you can't control what's being said. They just are operating on their own agendas, blah, blah, blah. But you can choose who you follow on Twitter. You can choose who you're friends with on Facebook. And that is totally an illusion because we all know at this point that social media platforms form algorithms that target what we're already searching, who we're already following. The people who I'm suggested to follow are not going to be challenging the points of view that I already have. The advertisements that are showing up on my news feeds are based on, you know, things I've said or things I've commented. And that's scary because it's so subtle. It's not overt messaging. And it doesn't help. It doesn't help with all of the division because it's just, as Melanie said, confirmation bias. It's creating this closed loop circuit, which is why, like, I think it's great that, you know, my parents, for example, can be more politically engaged on Facebook, whatever. Um, But we aren't seeing the same things. We can't have a conversation where we come together over like a meme we both saw because their algorithm is just taking them somewhere else than mine. So I, I think that's just definitely something we have to keep in mind is that social media isn't as democratic as I think we want it to be all the time. And It kind of feels like going back to what you were saying about technology outpacing our laws and institutions that like, is this like a wildfire that is just out of our control? Like at this point is, I don't even know if that's something that we can manually intervene with, you know? I have to hope that there's a certain educational value still on social media, even things like Facebook. I have to hope that there's a transformative potential, which doesn't mean you're going to convince someone of a different political viewpoint of your view, but you can at least share information to counter some of the purposeful misinformation that has so recently been put out there, even by the Trump administration. So when my sister-in-law was saying all these pro-Trump things and upset by me stating that white people need to do better, I in the comments was just hitting her with facts and things that are from textbooks, that are from vetted sources, right? So one of the things when I was trying to explain systemic racism is just this. This came from NBC News, and they said, in the history of the United States, there have been 1,984 U.S. senators, and only 10 of them have been Black. I think that's really powerful as a statistic. You know, when she's saying, sure, there's racist people everywhere in the world, and some people are horrendous racists, it's like, yes, I agree with that. And let's look at how bizarre it is that I am so excited to have Kamala Harris as a vice president, but that we have to be that excited to have a woman and to have a person of color as a vice president, right? Because we always are talking about like, anyone can be anything. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, are we post-racial because Obama's elected? 
what the heck? Like, just look at the statistics, right? Look at other countries. How many other countries? Like India, we had, you know, the president of women. Like, you know, all these countries in Latin America. Like, there are, you know, all Asia. There are all these countries where they have presidents and they have prime ministers and they're women. Yeah. I mean, I I was very excited to sit down and watch Kamala and Joe Biden speak last night, but I don't think I was really ready for the outpouring of emotion that, you know, my, myself and my female roommates experienced when we saw Kamala walk out in white, the first female black South Asian American to be vice president. And I really felt you know, so emotional about it, but also why did it take so long to get here? I don't know. I grew up in a very progressive family that always taught us there's no limit to what you can do. Even if you're a woman, that's not a thing, you know? And I think that seeing that she was the first really made me feel those limits tangibly and they shouldn't be there in 2020 in our country, especially when we tout this idea that the United States is the moral high ground of the world. And it's just, it's, it blows my mind. <laughs> it was, a, it was very emotional. I was, yeah. I was crying. There was this uh, <laughs> like video that was going around, I think yesterday, and it was like a montage of all of the vice presidents in, in American history uh, from like, you know, the, the old timey, like painted colonial portraits to like the black and white pictures. And then like, it just is like same, 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 same. And then it ends up with, with Kamala Harris. Quite a quite a difference right there. And and I kind of just want to use this and, and kind of the power of these images that I've seen. Because that's really what made me emotional. It's like a lot of what I was seeing on social media after their speeches and just like people reflecting on them, seeing these videos of people reacting and like crying and all of this. I really think that it speaks to like the crazy prominence and power that social media has taken on in this last election cycle. And especially in movements like Black Lives Matter over the summer. And, you know, whether the pandemic uh, contributed to that or, you know, the last few years have been setting the stage for that. I have to say that the Black Lives Matter uh, movement that was sort of galvanized over the summer, at least on my social media, and, and this is why I want to bring it up because you know, this might just be me, but it was like nothing I've ever seen before in my life. Uh, it was weeks and weeks and weeks of an outpouring of information, of infographics, of links to donations, to GoFundMes, uh, videos, book resources, like basically just a crazy drop of information. There's so much to keep up with. And especially like, you know, on Gen Z millennial social media, just these infographics that people were putting together. Um, and, I, you know, I think it's just like, as I said, it's like nothing I've ever seen before, the way that people were so directly participating in activism that way, in, in the best way that people can do during a pandemic. And, you know, I think something that brings up that's interesting to me as amazing as that is is like it's hard to distinguish what is real and what isn't like there's nobody independently fact checking anything you know, the amount the sheer amount of information is just bigger than like any one person can sort of comprehend so i mean i think that's another element to kind of talk about here is like when there's so much of everything and so much participation which is a great thing uh, how do we make sure that, you know, people are getting the facts right? Because we've seen that, like, truth is not something to be taken lightly over the past four years. It is hard-earned. It's been hard-earned in this election by so many communities that mobilized to get Joe Biden into the Oval Office. You know, is social media playing a huge role in that? And I guess we'll see in the exit polls. But, like, how important was that in this election? You know, I have to wonder. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that social media has played a huge role in the election. You mentioned a number of things, including, you know, Black Lives Matter. And so one thing I wanted to say is I know in our conversation, we've talked a lot about hate groups and Trumpism and intentional misinformation from the Trump campaign. And then I think, you know, the counter to that or the flip side is we also have to think about social media being used as social justice activists um, take that platform and really 
spread messages that wouldn't be on mainstream media. I'm sorry, CNN's helpful, but it is so white. Like CNN is so white. Like where is that hashtag? Like we talk about, <laughs> you know, the Oscars are so white. CNN is so white, right? And so the way that Black Lives Matter and, you know, founders, uh, Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi and Patrice Colors were able to really spark this movement online uh, with the hashtag and so much more that then has, resonated not just across the nation, but around the world, right? I think it was really in the wake of, if I remember correctly, Michael Brown being killed by the police officer in Ferguson, Missouri, where it really took off. And, um, you know, when we think about CNN and mainstream media, they're not necessarily going to often report on those types of issues that are most pertinent to marginalized communities, communities that sometimes have less access, right, to these professional networks. And so to be able to spread messages like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and in ways that really not just get attention, but mobilize action, right? So that it doesn't just become changing your profile pick thing to have the rim around you say Black Lives Matter, but like actually, doing things that affect change is so important. And so as we can talk about a lot of the negatives of social media, there's also these real positives. And so an example, even on our own campus, because we're all UCSB students talking about this, uh, even with COVID and the campus being remote, we had an undergraduate history student who recently graduated named Michael Sanders, who really mobilized our community by having a thousand people gather in the wake of the George Floyd murder to uh, march from Stork Tower out to Coal Oil Point and had a whole bunch of speeches and people marched and that was a thousand people attended. I don't think something like that could be organized that quickly without something like social media and to have it be an undergraduate student who's not even you know, part of associated students or a student organization or something that already has a huge membership. To have an individual be able to call together a bunch of people is really empowering. And so I think that, you know, that's one thing we have to keep in mind as well as those positives and negatives. And it's not always the thing itself. It's more about how people are using it. Totally. And I think that no event really shows both the positive and the negative, you know, impact that social media can have in the same, you know, sentence is Blackout Tuesday, which, you know, was a social media movement that kind of started in the recording industry, in the music industry, but was really kind of taken over by people on social media. And, you know, everyone was trying to show their support by posting these Black squares on their profiles, but it ended, you know, which is good. And, and we got to see just how much, you know, people wanted to be involved in this movement. And we saw this capture the news organization's attention, but we also saw it kind of eclipse the resources and information that the Black Lives Matter movement was trying to put out for protesters. So I feel like, you know, in the end, it kind of showed the good and the bad. But, you know, do you think that the good outweighs the bad? Or do you think that, you know, this kind of movement showed the issues that can come from using social media solely to promote these movements? I think there's also something to be said there about how social media allows for accountability in a way that we as a populace can't really do with the mainstream news. Like, yes, accountability, a whole thing in itself, right? But you know, let's talk about Blackout Tuesday, for example, and that horrendous I take responsibility celebrity montage of like Hollywood people saying that they'll do better or whatever. Totally useless, empty performative activism. But then there was also all of Twitter and all, you know, a whole response of people kind of explaining why Blackout Tuesday and misdirecting people from Black Lives Matter resources and why performative activism isn't okay. Like you have this back and forth dialogue, you have 
people like Patrice Kohler's being able to do this daily news recap video on her Instagram. She doesn't need the backing of MSNBC or CNN to send out her message. We don't need to wait for people who are at the top of a news organization and have their own political connections, whatever, to really amplify our voices and to be able to hold people accountable, not just in the news, not just politicians on the national stage, but even within our own networks on social media. So I think it kind of, it to me is reminiscent of this idea of like protesting and counter protesting or allowing people like Ben Shapiro to come speak, but then also having people mobilize in response to that. Like you have this back and forth on social media and that is kind of what's from other forms of dialogue. One tactic that administrators in a university environment often use when you have groups that are really not getting along online through social media, like when we had college Republicans and Black Student Union really upset about the Ben Shapiro event that was happening and how student funds were being used for that. Uh, you often want to bring those groups together in person so that they can have more meaningful conversations face-to-face -face because a lot of times people are so much more horrible to each other online when they feel like it's this anonymous space where they can say and do things that they would probably never do in person. Some of the challenges with social media is it feels like speech is just speech and as though everything's like an even playing field, but in reality, different groups get impacted differently, right? Even if we think about hate groups going and trying to kidnap the governor of Michigan, right? And then Trump basically not only not denouncing, but somewhat seeming to support that kind of behavior, right? So I guess part of it is like the power of social media to amplify. Melissa, I'm glad you bring that up because something that when you mentioned harassment, right? And that's sort of getting into this this other side of all of this, which is people who don't want to come together yeah. and don't want to have dialogue, they don't want to get people to the polls, and they certainly are not trying to, you know, spread any sort of uplifting message. What I'm talking about specifically is cyberbullying and doxing yeah. and how those are kind of two very disturbing byproducts of the social media era. To me, it seems like doxing would be a less difficult subject for university administrations to grapple with because it's so directly tied to inciting violence and or harassment. You know, I'm thinking of something like the Canary Mission, which publishes the contact information and the pictures and the names of people who identify as the pro-boycott, divest, and sanctions movement or anti-Israel. There's been, you know, examples uh, on the national level. There was a former Democratic congressional aide who I believe was tried in court in 2018 for doxing Republican senators. And then we had a little taste of that here recently with Laura Tanner, who was a grad student in the feminist studies department who had uh, transphobic tweets and, you know, that prompted a lot of backlash. So I guess... <laughs> my This is my roundabout way of asking, is it easier, at least in what you've studied, for universities to deal with just the straight up harassment and doxing side of social media usage? It's actually really difficult for universities to, in general, deal with a lot of the hateful things happening on social media. Again, part of it is like we were saying, institutions are slow to develop policy and protocols and implement it. So part of it is the technology or people's behavior is so rapid and often outpaces these slower moving institutions. But, you know, at UCSB, they have, Student Affairs has um, definitely been very concerned about things like doxing and have created resources and protocols. So they have like a website where it has information for students who are concerned about doxing or have been doxed and, you know, bias reporting and things like that, where people can code to the website and get that information. It is difficult because these are kind of outside actors when you have groups like Canary Mission and people doxing. So if we think about what kind of legal right or ability or power of persuasion the university has against these large, well-funded entities, it's, it's challenging. It's a problem. So a lot of times 
administrators and our administration is very focused on what they can do, what power they do have to support students. So I have been able to, the highlight honestly of being here as a grad student for me personally has been able, has been being able to work really closely with our vice chancellor of student affairs, Margaret Clawoon. And like, you know, she's a very dear mentor to me. And, uh, I just have so much respect for her as a person. And so some of the things she has done that is so outside the box is to actually write letters of support for students who have been doxxed and who have negatively had their online presence impacted. So when they have applied for grad school, when they've applied for jobs, if she personally knows them, she has said, so-and-so is an outstanding student who has really you know done amazing activism on our campus i feel it's an unfair uh, representation of this student to have these doxing things out there she never would name like canary mission or the group that has done the doxing you have to be careful how you do it but really really rehabilitate the importance of that student to our campus community and their value and the things they've done and so that's been really great something i've been able to share with other colleges as one way you still have some power you can retain as an administration to really support students and actually take a negative i would say and turn it towards more of a positive of yeah they were doxxed but it's because they've been doing this amazing work but you have to do it in a way that's very content neutral that's not taking sides on any particular divisive political issue and that isn't even naming sometimes these entities that are actually engaging in the bad behavior of doxing. Definitely a tough needle right. to thread right there. Yeah, I mean, it's not about the issue then, it's about the tactics. And I, I mean, I think that doxing is really kind of a nonpartisan issue here. I think we've seen it on all sides. Yeah. So yeah. So kind of going off of that, we did want to have a bit of a discussion about some of the activism on our campus that has happened in the last year. Um, so like we said earlier, we first met you at the Speech Matters conference that was put on by the Free Speech Center back in February. And um, Harper and I had a blast. It was like right before everything closed down and we were in DC um, talking about protests. And the coolest thing happened as we were talking about student protests on campus, there were student protesters there protesting as part of the COLA movement. So, you know, what was kind of going, I mean, I feel like since the pandemic started, talk about COLA has kind of disappeared. So we kind of wanted to update on what's going on with that movement and, you know, how has it maybe transitioned during the pandemic? Yeah. And for people who are listening and don't know what COLA is, if you could give a bit of background on that too. Yeah, totally. So it was amazing to meet all of you in person and interesting that we did that in Washington, D.C., as opposed to on our own campus, but that's when we got to actually meet up in person was all the way out there. And yeah, it was amazing to have student protesters actually protest our, at the time, UC President Janet Napolitano right in front of us with signs. The students who were protesting were part of the UCDC internship program. They're all UC students from mostly UC Santa Cruz, but also UC Irvine, several other campuses. And so they were protesting a whole lot of things one thing they were protesting was in support of the COLA movement, which is the cost of living adjustment movement that graduate students at UC Santa Cruz began. They were largely teaching assistants who wanted the uh, pay to increase that they were getting. And it started in September 2019. A lot of it was exacerbated by the fact that there is very limited housing in Santa Cruz and grad students have to pay so much for their housing and just couldn't get by right and they had been upset that the union had negotiated like a bargaining agreement contract years prior that santa cruz hadn't approved because it wasn't enough for them they were like this is doing nothing for us but the other ucs outnumbered and you know approved it so in some ways uh, i personally am sympathetic to the uc santa cruz grad students being very upset that the union was perhaps not representing their best interests because they really had voted against that previously because some people get upset about that and they're like but there was a contract in the union and they had negotiated it but i really feel like santa cruz in particular had been kind of left out of that and so this protest it ended up being that it went from smaller protests in front of their library trying to get attention to actually withholding grades as you all know 
and uh, it eventually became larger demonstrations at UC Santa Cruz and then other UC campuses eventually took up this cause. So the COLA movement spread out to all the UC campuses and in terms of numbers of people engaged, high numbers of undergrads as well as grad students who really organized and at UC Santa Cruz they had huge protests and it was overwhelmingly the undergrads who got arrested actually. So I just want to put that out there that the COLA movement would not have been possible without all the support of undergrads and faculty and others. And so um, UC Santa Barbara had the second largest COLA movement after Santa Cruz. And then in terms of the largest protest demonstration, if I remember correctly, I think it was actually on our campus when we had an estimated 2,500 people march to the entrance to the campus over at Henley Gate and kind of show their force of numbers and threaten to potentially even take over Highway 217, but did not, just showed their numbers and, and walked back to the center of campus, to Stork Tower, to continue the protest. And so I actually um, think it's made a huge uh, impact on the COLA movement having COVID and having the campus really become remote and not being able to have in-person protests and demonstrations. I personally was not a leader in any of the COLA movement. I have stayed kind of neutral as a free speech fellow, more so just studying it, but I'm definitely empathetic to the concerns. And I did my undergrad at UC Santa Cruz. I was out there protesting with the TAs 20 something years ago, right? Yeah, and I think that the way that this movement has been able to, I don't want to say not sustain itself, but I mean, things certainly changed with the pandemic. And, you know, because as you were saying, withholding grades, having classes be canceled, having, you know, the physical presence of people kind of walking out and showing universities were not going to, you know, stand for this. It was really powerful. And that is something that I don't think social media can necessarily replicate. Like that absence of bodies, it's just not the same. And I think I think that during the pandemic, we've really seen sort of a complementary relationship between in-person protests, of course, Black Lives Matter was not just relegated to social media, um, and even, you know, celebrations ongoing all day yesterday, like that was in person. And then also social media, how they bolster each other and sort of work together. But I think one thing we can say is that following this pandemic, when we are back in person and protests and social activism in person will resume, I'm, I'm confident in that. But I think the way that people are able to organize has changed forever because of what we've seen we're capable of doing through social media during this pandemic. And I think that is an ongoing development in the way that campus activism takes place. But to me, it it feels like a total sort of paradigm shift here. So, I mean, after the pandemic, where do you think that leaves us? Maybe not just with COLA, but with all of the other sort of national and ongoing social movements? First off, I'm just thinking disruption is a key word that comes to mind for me of how there's different ways activists can be disrupting things, right? And there's like a physical in-person protest demonstration that can be disruptive or like online trying to be disruptive, right? And it's so much harder now with COVID for college campuses that are, you know, remote and there aren't physically people present on the campus to be disruptive. So like UC Santa Cruz, the activists were shutting down the two entrances so people couldn't enter the campus. But, you know, same thing with 217 when people were threatening if they had but didn't on our campus to shut down the highway. It was the same idea of blocking entrance or exiting our campus. But when you suddenly don't have people going there, what does it mean to link arms and block Cheadle Hall? if no one's going in Cheadle Hall, right? So like they've really had to be so much more creative to kind of pivot to using social media. In the case of Cola, a lot of it has been, I would say a situation where the movement wouldn't have been able to continue if they hadn't already been really adept at using social media. And social media was there to like get people to show up and be physically present at those protests and demonstrations and things like that. But it was so sudden, right? Wasn't it just like a week or a couple weeks between this huge protest and then boom, we're all gone. And like, we're not coming onto the campus. That was something that really struck me. And so because they had already 
been so good with social media, they did kind of pivot to do more online kind of education and like phone calls where they inundate administrators with phone calls, demanding movement on COLA, email type of things. Um, a lot of it has something that was really clever was like trying to make administrators look foolish. So our previous graduate uh, studies dean had written a letter to COLA activists and the activists, I don't know if you ever saw this, they took the letter and then they made it like uh, as though they were editing the letter and red font, just a very clever way to kind of revert the power dynamic, right? And I think I was saying it's not totally fair to that former dean of graduate division. She's since left and gone to another campus just because she was already doing that. It had nothing to do with COLA or anything. She just, you know, probably got a better job offer or whatever. But she wrote this letter and had good intentions, but students saw the activists as really patronizing. Actually, this coming Friday, I'm speaking at a panel for student affairs administrators on working with graduate student protesters and what we can learn from the COLA movement. So I guess that's why I have this on my mind. And one of the recommendations I would say is like when drafting a letter, just like having a lot of administrators or even if there's like a grad student worker or someone like looking at it to think about what is said and thinking about it from the audience perspective of a student. You know what I mean? Because even if you have good intentions, I have no doubt she had good intentions in recommending counseling services, but there is a bit of a disconnect, right? Like if a high level administrator is trying to fight for higher pay, you're not going to have the chancellor say, well, why don't you go to individual counseling? I think for me, that's been one of the biggest takeaways is trying to sometimes get in the mind of different roles people inhabit on the campus and thinking about how you can better kind of communicate. So even if powers that be, it's not possible, let's say, to actually increase the pay of grad students, then it becomes, and I mean, it is possible, they have tons of money, but I'm just saying, like, if it's not going to happen because of politics, then like, what can be done on our campus, or what can administrators do to at least kind of make grad students feel better about their predicament or situation. So that's not satisfying. That doesn't mean that like you're eating healthier food one night because you can afford it. It doesn't. It's not enough. There's a way in which sometimes I have to differentiate between someone who's in a role and like I might be frustrated with that role that they're in and what they can and can't do and with them as a person who I still care about, you know? And so I think for me, that's been part of my hope as well, is getting people to kind of relate to each other on a very kind of personal level of whether it's red state, blue state, or vice chancellor, student activist, or, you know, whatever those differences are to try and better create communication like between groups. Yeah. And I, I think that there is so much work to be done regarding in-person communication, like what you just said, but also over social media. And I think that there's possibility in both of those sort of planes of communication. I think that I've never seen such a kind of a vivid and in-your-face example of free speech in action as I did at the Speech Matters Conference in DC, seeing in real time this presentation that was being given about the importance of free speech being interrupted by protesters. It was really just something to behold. And I think, you know, the way it was handled was really positive. I think that there was space made for those protests to happen in a way that also didn't disrupt the conference. And that was very promising to see. But for me, I think it ties back to this age-old question that like we can't seem to figure out and something that I've been talking about with friends and family since 2016, which is like, I guess in the context of all social movements where universities are asked to step in and take a side, it's, it's the question of are UCs and all universities beholden to protect the interests and the identities and the well-being of the students who attend their institution? Or are they, you know, mandated to uphold the First Amendment or the way that, that other people define free speech? 
is there ever really a, a definitive stance on free speech versus hate speech or diversity versus allowing people to pursue their right to say whatever they want? And I mean, we had Prop 16 on the ballot just this past election. It was endorsed by the UC, uh, the repeal of the ban against affirmative action. It didn't pass, but again, like that was a really interesting kind of change where like the UC really did take a stance in favor of this. Whereas in the past, I feel like I haven't seen the university so strongly kind of come out in favor of that. And to me, that that really is representative of just how much change students have been able to drive through grassroots movement that like it isn't okay for universities to not weigh in anymore. I think that's really important. So that is my mm -hmm. kind of larger takeaway from COLA and then everything we've seen over the past few months. Yeah. And, you know, kind of going off of that, something I think that Harper and I kind of got to uniquely, you know, witness when we were at the conference was we actually had a friend who was at UCDC and we kind of snuck in and sat in on a discussion between UCDC students who were protesting at the conference and UCDC administrators after the protests and the conference had kind of concluded. And it struck me that when they were protesting, they seemed so strong and they seemed like very motivated to push forward these ideals. And I think listening to them talk afterwards, we got to understand exactly why, because they were talking about how it was directly affecting their day-to-day -day lives and directly affecting their opportunities to achieve education. And, you know, that really was something that I gained a lot of perspective from. Yeah, at the Speech Matters conference, I was really emotionally moved by seeing students protesting in front of us. I found it really hard to actually listen to the content at times because I was having such an emotional reaction. I would say that sitting there in my mind, I just kept thinking, these are UC students. These are your students. You're in their building because they're paying money to be here as part of the UCDC internship program. And it just felt to me like, I'm just going to name it. I put it in my toolkit as well. It was a little dicey. I can be honest, I wasn't sure if I was going to get pushback from the UC Free Speech Center for saying this. I felt like sitting there as a UC grad student watching UC undergrads protest, holding signs in front of the president at the time, Janet Napolitano of the UC system, and also Chancellor Howard Gilman, who's one of the co-chair advisory people in charge of the Free Speech Center, right? It just felt like there was a disconnect. It felt like these are UC students, but they're kind of being treated like they have no connection to the UC system or what's going on. It felt to me as though we were being told, this is quote, our conference, and you're like disrupting it as though you are just some random people who walked in off the street who have no connection to the UC system and aren't living in beds three or four floors above where we're sitting with your personal belongings here. We're in their house. It felt very bizarre to have it seem like they were being literally cut out of the image. I've gone back and watched the video and there's an attempt to not show the protest signs because there's like this bar that just kind of comes up. Uh, I mean, maybe that's just the way it looks, but to me, it, it felt like it was a little like stick to the sides. And the thing is, I actually really respect, you know, Howard Gilman, the chancellor and one of the heads of the Free Speech Center. In a lot of ways, I've read his book actually twice on campus free speech and he talks about microaggressions and how we have to be very aware. And so for me, when he said, these people, and that was the phrase he used to talk about the student protesters holding their signs, that felt dehumanizing. To me, that felt like a microaggression. That felt like, who are these people? Or like the scum that came in off of the street or something. When it's like, they're your students. Like I would have felt so much better if he said, our students. There's so much more power in like our students versus these people. And so especially for him as a straight white man up there with Latina students who told me later, most of them identify as LGBTQ, you know, tattooed piercings, not looking like him, holding these signs, it just felt like a huge miss for me. And it did feel like there should have been an opportunity to tell the students, UC students, like, oh, we're going to give you a few minutes to just go up to the microphone and read your demands. And so I did feel like it was a miss. I did feel like it could have been 
handled better. But I am totally aware of politics and that the people who were actually running the conference are answering up to Janet Napolitano, who's in the room, who's being protested against, right? So those people who maybe could have changed the environment maybe are constrained by their job and power dynamics to not be able to do that. During the break, I talked to a group of the student activists and two of them, my wife and I spent an hour and a half taking them to brunch in the hotel and asking them a bunch of questions. And that's actually my toolkit because I told them, I want to write you into the toolkit that is being paid for and on the website of the Free Speech Center as much as I can because I was hurt, I was in pain as a UC student not being able to see you use your voice in that environment and why would we hold a conference that was not helpful to the people in the UCDC program, the students. We have all these people who are funded by the center and brought in from outside but not to benefit the students in the center. So, you know, to be honest, out of my whole 100-page toolkit, I have a, a ton of emotional investment just like in that section where I wrote about the conference and, you know, anyone who's interested in student activism and UCSB, like, I don't, I'm not one of those people that wants to be an infomercial and like buy the book because, hey, it's free. <laughs> but like on the website, I have a lot of links to actually mostly Daily Nexus articles. Yay, we love to hear that. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't have been able to do the toolkit without all the Daily Nexus articles telling me like, oh, that was the date. That's what was said. This is what happened. So you know, yay for journalism. One last thing, like the Vice Chancellor of Student Affairs, Margaret Clawoon, who I admire so much, one thing I love is she really embraces the idea of students questioning the system, questioning the institution, and that that's part of like the educational mission of the institution is for students and student activists to find their voice and to push back. And so for me, like that's the only way I've been able to feel good working with the administration and feel very solid and good about my values as a student activist. I absolutely can't think of a moment that better kind of underscores these both, you know, the dual hypocrisy of free speech and social media, but also the opportunities for empowerment we have here. And I feel like that can be applied more broadly, too. Without activists today questioning the systems that are in place in this country, we wouldn't be moving forward as a society. And, you know, we wouldn't have our first female Black vice president. So thanks for sitting down with us today and talking about all these things. And we really appreciate you coming and talking to us. Well, I really appreciate you guys having me. This was an absolute delight for me and Melanie. Yeah. Yeah, we love it. Yeah. We love to talk about these yeah. things. And, you know, here's hoping that 2021 brings a little more peace. Here are some other hot headlines from the Daily Nexus. UCSB is refusing to release information about what they pay employees of color, even though the California Public Records Act requires that this information be made accessible to the public. A team of Daily Nexus photographers spent Election Day documenting in-person voting at local polling stations. Check out the photo story online at dailynexus.com and in the most recent print edition of the Daily Nexus, available now for free on newsstands in Isla Vista. Special thanks to our guest, Melissa Bartholomew, and to the Hot Off the Pod team, our producer, Emily Kosos, our new social media manager, Josh and Manti, and special shout out to the graphics team at the Daily Nexus. Also, we spent this whole episode talking about social media, and yet we have never mentioned our own social media on this podcast. We are absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> so check us out at Hot Off The Pod, that's one word, on Instagram, Twitter, and or Facebook. You pick your poison. And if you like what you've been listening to, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and or Spotify to keep getting updates about new episodes. See y'all next time.